Hi everybody, Liam here. If you're a new listener, don't worry about the chapter 5 part of this episode's title. Every show in the Long Lost Oakland miniseries stands on its own. And speaking of Long Lost Oakland, thank you so much to everybody who supported the Kickstarter campaign. We're just putting some finishing touches on the map, and then it'll be going to the printer, and then you'll get it in the mail. If you missed the campaign, don't worry. I'm doing a Long Lost Oakland event at the California Historical Society on June 27th, and I'll have some copies for sale there. Follow East Bay Yesterday for more details on that. Okay, on with the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. When I first moved to the Bay in the early 2000s, there were always underground shows and places with names like the Noodle Factory or the French Fry Factory. I always liked it when the names of places echoed the history. Even though there aren't as many warehouse parties or artist collectives in West Oakland as there used to be, a lot of these old buildings still exist. The outsides are usually covered with tags or sometimes even giant murals that tell stories about the neighborhood. These former industrial sites are a big part of West Oakland, both visually and culturally. So I knew I wanted to do something on the Long Lost Oakland map to illustrate this history. But what? I started digging into the archives, and as soon as I heard this story, I knew I'd found the right place. In December of 1905, the cannery opened for business, four months before the earthquake. Which was fortuitous because when the earthquake happened, then uh, we get back to the story that he had all this vacant land. That's lifelong Oaklander Bruce Kwan. He's talking about his great-grandfather, Lou Hing. The vacant land Bruce referred to was around 12th and Pine Street in deep West Oakland on the property of Pacific Coast Cannery. The backdrop is that General Funkston ordered the official relief agencies to not serve any people of color, that only the white people were to be served. And so all the people of color had no place to go. General Funston was in charge of San Francisco's response to the massive 1906 earthquake. If you Google it, the first thing that comes up is an article titled Frederick Funston, the man who saved San Francisco on the California Department of Parks and Rec's website. It doesn't mention Funston's anti-Chinese racism. All of Chinatown, as you know, was devastated. And then what they did was the, the army then guarded that area to not allow any Chinese back in there. And the Chinese had to stand on the outside to watch the, the white scavengers go in and scavenge. Instead of the regular refugee camps, a few hundred Chinese folks were allowed to stay in a really cold, windy part of the city near where Golden Gate Bridge is now. But even that lousy option wasn't available for thousands of people who'd lost their homes in the earthquake and fire. There were, I don't know, 12 to 14,000 Chinese uh, living in Chinatown at the time. Yeah, here it says 13,954. Right. So where did they go? Oakland's Chinatown was really small and also facing discrimination. They didn't have the resources to support thousands of refugees, 
So Liu Hang stepped up with a solution. Oakland also initially refused to serve the people of color here. So my great-grandfather then took money out of his own pocket initially. Apparently, he bought tents from the U.S. Army. They would not give him tents. He had to buy the tents and then provide food because he had the cannery. Mm -hmm. He could provide food for people to eat. Uh, he hired cooks. Liu Hing didn't just hire any old cooks. He hired Chinese cooks so that during this horrible period of living in makeshift refugee camps, at least people would have some comfort food. Liu was able to provide all this because he was one of the most successful Chinese businessmen in California. The quake victims ended up staying on the grounds of the Pacific Coast Cannery in West Oakland for months because a lot of powerful people in San Francisco wanted to keep the Chinese out permanently. In the meantime, uh, all the other Chinatowns had started sending rice and, and food to help my great-grandfather feed thousands of people. Eventually, thanks to political pressure from the Empress of China and people in the States like Liu Hang, San Francisco did allow Chinatown to be rebuilt. But not all the refugees moved back. Some chose to stay in the East Bay and expand Oakland's Chinatown. This story jumped out at me because it raises so many questions. Like, how did this guy Liu Hing become the owner of an absolutely massive cannery and have the funds to support thousands of people during this time when Chinese immigrants in California were facing the most horrible discrimination imaginable? I started digging around for answers and I got this really unexpected email from a retired librarian named Don Hausler. It said, quote, I found something interesting about Liu Hing. In 1918, he had been marked for death by the Chinese underground. The gang that planned to assassinate him was called the Yellow Hand. Whoa. Don found that in an Oakland Tribune from 1918. The details were a little thin, so I met up with Don to hear what else he knew. There was some kind of underground gang of assassins and they were able to kill one merchant. That victim was Fong Wing, one of Liu Hang's close partners. There was a hate list of Chinese who had uh, done something to alienate the Chinese establishment. That's even what the newspaper called the targets, the hate list. In the Chinese community, a lot of times if there was a business deal, if you violated the agreement that they wouldn't go to the police that you were either ostracized or maybe murdered. California's legal system wasn't known for being very friendly to Chinese people at the time, which is why it was generally avoided. Don did a lot of this research when he was looking into the history of Chinese-run underground casinos and opium dens in the East Bay. Besides Liu Hing's legitimate businesses, he also had connections to this underworld. Liu Hing, he went into hiding and and they drive him around in a limousine with, I guess, the rear windows blacked out. But, and I don't know how many years that went on, but he was marked for death. That's pretty gangster, but lots of big business guys have been involved with legal activities, right? Okay, here's where the story takes another interesting twist. Again, Bruce Kwan. He's not an ordinary, excuse the expression, Chinaman. What? 
So this is the sheriff's identification. This is my great, this is my grandfather's, oh. he's a deputy sheriff. Oh. That's right. In this era when there were all kinds of racist laws about where Chinese people could live and what jobs they could do and what property they could own, Liu Hang was playing by a totally different set of rules. He was deputized. Right. Wow. And there's even the badges here. Right here. Amazing. Got the eagle emblem, Alameda County. Wow. So he was not an ordinary businessman. The sheriff's badge was just one example of Liu Hang's power. Bruce showed me letters from some of California's highest officials praising Liu Hang. These were basically get-out-of-jail-free cards. And there's even a photo of San Francisco's mayor, Sonny Jim Rolfe, celebrating his inauguration with Liu Hang in a Chinese restaurant, which was pretty unheard of for a white politician at the time. And it doesn't stop there. Eventually, Liu's connections went all the way to the White House. There are so many parts to this story. I was trying to figure out what it all meant. And then I realized what it really boils down to is power. How a little kid on his own in a foreign country was able to become a boss of bosses. There's a lot to learn from that. And Liu Hing's legacy still looms large in Oakland. The, the cannery really started right here. And the building over here is new construction. The garage and these units are new construction. But um, you can kind of tell where there's pillars and when there, where there aren't pillars is, is kind of the, the separation here. But throughout the building, we really tried to keep the history. That's Nancy Holliday, who redeveloped Lou Hing's cannery into Pacific Cannery Lofts with her husband, Rick. She's going to take us on a tour to see what's left from when the East Bay was the canning capital of the Pacific coast, back when immigrants flocked here from all over the world, not just China, but places like Italy and Portugal too, to work in this West Oakland factory. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. Nobody talked in the family talked about family history because uh, even if you go into Chinatown today, nobody will tell you. When he was growing up, Bruce Kwan didn't know much about his great-grandfather, Liu Hang. All that changed about two decades ago. My father, about two months before he died, had me go into the garage of his house and pull down two boxes that were sealed. And he put him on the kitchen table. He had just gotten out of ICU, and he knew his days were numbered. And he said, look, you were a litigator, and so I know you probably have the skill set to track down the family history. So open up those boxes. And I opened up the boxes, and in the boxes were photographs and uh, artifacts that had never seen the light of day since my grandmother died in 1967. He sealed them up then. So he said, I want you to go through this and piece together the family history. Bruce eventually teamed up with some Chinese-American historians for this mission. The documents and photos in those boxes told a story that went all the way back to the very first wave of Asian immigration to the West Coast. What I pieced together is that he was born in 1858. He being Liu Hang. 
Before that, his father had come, about 1850, searching for gold. But when he went up to where the gold country was at that time, there was tremendous backlash against the Chinese. They had imposed the foreign anti-miners tax. And so uh, he came back to San Francisco Chinatown, found there was nothing available in terms of work because there were so many unemployed Chinese men that he went back. The law that Bruce is talking about was the first of many California laws that were designed to either keep Chinese people out or punish the ones that were already here. The people behind these laws said that they were all about protecting white workers from being undercut by cheap Chinese labor. But the sentiment around these laws was pure racism. The mobs that lynched Chinese people weren't talking about wages when they were burning down villages. There were a lot of laws that were imposed on the Chinese, particularly as an ethnic group, the low point being the 1882 Exclusion Act, specifically targeting one race. So against that backdrop, my great-grandfather came in 1868. Liu Hing's older brother had come over first, but he drowned while traveling on a ship that caught fire. So my great-grandfather was essentially left by himself at the age of 11 or 12. Lou didn't have any immediate family here, but he was immersed in San Francisco's growing Chinatown, and he looked for opportunities outside that community as well. Then the story was that he worked during the day, and then he went to missionary school at night. And that's why later on he really supported the church. That's where we believe he learned English. White society forced segregation on Chinatown, so options were pretty limited. You couldn't just go get a job anywhere in the city. But learning English gave Liu Hing a huge advantage for slowly breaking out of this isolation. He had to be careful, though. You can read 19th century newspapers, and there are all these accounts of white children throwing rocks at Chinese that were just walking down the street or beating them up. You read that all the time. So there was a lot of violence directed towards the Chinese. Somehow, Lou got a job working for a Swedish woman, helping her preserve food in glass jars. Bruce thinks that this lady gave Lou some surplus supplies to bring home, and he started experimenting, and this is what led to his first business. By 1877, had perfected a way of canning fruit and vegetables in uh, tin. So he and a Klansman then uh, opened up a cannery on Stockton Street called the Pacific Fruit Packing Company. The way that Liu Hing expanded this business is key to understanding the strategy he used to build a multi-million dollar empire. He was basically saying, how can I grow my business? And I need to grow my business by selling to the larger society. So one of the ways of doing that is bringing in, as business partners, people from the larger society. Liu Hing didn't just bring on any old white boys. He partnered with guys who played key roles in San Francisco's growing import-export operations. In other words... They had a lot of connections. And he didn't just recruit white investors either. He was smart enough to go outside and hire 
white attorneys. Liu Hang even started dressing and cutting his hair like a white American. Now, there are certainly critiques you can make about this strategy of assimilation, but Chinese immigrants at the time were more worried about survival than preserving cultural identity, so they did what it took to get by. And Liu Hang did more than just get by. He got rich, and he helped a lot of other people get rich too, including two brothers named William and Sonny Jim Rolfe. Sonny Jim was the one who would go on to become mayor. Anyway, the Rolfs came from the shipping industry. They were basically middlemen who helped connect buyers and sellers, and they worked to expand Liu Hing's canning business into the East Bay. He and the Rolf family figured out that in order to be, for the product to get out easily, that the railheads were coming into Oakland. And at that time, there was a huge, vast, vacant property out near where the railheads were being developed coming into Oakland. Besides the growing demand for canned food, there was another reason why Liu Heng wanted to start this massive new processing plant. The Chinese Exclusion Act banned most immigration from China, but Liu Heng and his friends and relatives all had people they wanted to bring over, and they wanted to be able to go back and forth too. So he found a loophole and he exploited the hell out of it. Basically, my great-grandfather used the cannery and other businesses as a way to get around the 1882 Exclusion Act. If you were identified and could be confirmed to be a merchant, you can go back and forth to China. So there would be, oh gosh, um, a list of shareholders from the cannery, I, don't, I have a, a list somewhere, of people who invested in this and then became given the title of merchants. This went beyond business. With each new company Liu Heng helped launch, he was literally building a community, a loyal community. And that is how you become a godfather. My great-grandfather in the morning was in the cannery in Oakland, and then he would take the ferry across over to, he had an office in Rolf Commission Agents. So he was there every day. Uh, but also, he had uh, my my grandmother and grandfather, and were were running essentially the four brothers in Chinatown. They were running the illegal activities in Chinatown. Sounds like they were pretty busy. They were very busy. Before we talk about the cannery, let's talk about cans for a minute. You might not think cans are something to get excited about, but this method of preserving food totally changed the world. Canning developed in Europe in the late 1700s, and it allowed armies and navies to go farther in bigger numbers than they ever had before, because now they could pack lots of food that wouldn't go bad. Canning totally facilitated colonization and warfare at a whole new scale. It also allowed more people to live farther and farther away from farms and completely changed development patterns in other ways too. For example, giant canneries for processing salmon and other fish popped up at the mouths of rivers all along the west coast and, okay, I'm sort of getting away from the story here, but seriously, if you'd never eaten a piece of fruit in the winter 
and then all of a sudden you could? Just think about that for a second. Bringing it back to the East Bay, this was the canning capital of the West Coast. Del Monte, which is still one of the biggest food companies in the United States, has its roots right here in Oakland. Historian Don Hausler explains the three main factors why canneries love this place. There was a lot of agriculture in uh, Alameda County at that time, and you had a workforce, and you had uh, the railroad tracks. There used to be a huge operation called Lusk Cannery, where the Temescal DMV is now. Back then, this area was mostly farms. Even as Alameda County urbanized, it was still easy enough to bring in produce from the Central Valley before it started to go bad. And by the way, I know canning has gotten really trendy in the last decade, so maybe you're picturing this type of vibe right now. So I would highly recommend canning to everybody. It is so much fun and so easy. And then when you see all your nice jars of fruits and vegetables, you just feel so happy. So go ahead and give it a try. I'm certainly glad I did. That clip is from one of thousands of how-to videos on YouTube. But back in the day, canning wasn't a hobby for people trying to eat more sustainably. A few decades ago, Don Hausler interviewed folks who used to work at a big Del Monte plant that was located where the Pixar studio in Emeryville is now. They described the work as absolutely brutal. There were thousands of women that worked at Del Monte and they probably didn't get paid very much and it was horrible working conditions. Jim Layton was the name of the manager and he said that the, the women, they were standing in, in on a cement floor, with which was usually wet, and and they were working with hot in hot water for twelve hours, and and sometimes the skin would just slough off their hands, you know, from just being in water. And and I I talked to a woman who worked at Del Monte, and she, and she, she considered it an ordeal to work there. After twelve hours, you're on your feet. I don't know if you ever worked at a job and had to stand for. 12 hours that your legs just give out. Remember the three main reasons why the East Bay became the canning capital? There were the transportation networks like railroads and the port, and proximity to farms. And the third factor was available workforce. Especially during the busy harvest season, canneries needed a lot of employees. There was nobody to do that kind of hard, dirty labor except immigrants, except people of color. At Pacific Coast Cannery, it wasn't just Chinese workers. Liu Heng also hired from West Oakland's other immigrant communities. These were the early days, and that's why the Chinese and, and you know, the Italians and the Portuguese were not fully accepted also. And so these were the only jobs available to them. By 1914, Liu Heng's operation was the third largest cannery on the West Coast. He had about a thousand workers, mostly women, processing apricots, blackberries, peaches, plums, raspberries, strawberries, and just about every other fruit growing in California. One of the reasons for the cannery's success was a marketing strategy that hid the company's Chinese roots. Liu Hing understood that America was a brand that consumers all around the world wanted, so he named his products after the most patriotic thing possible. This logo is... it's... A cowboy, and at that time, remember, in the early 1900s, what was famous? 
It was Buffalo Bill Cody and the Traveling Roadshow. And so they adopted this buckskin brand logo and the name buckskin brand to symbolize the prevailing popularity of cowboys and Indians. At a time when white America was still celebrating its conquest of the West, the brand was a huge hit. And the patriotic label helped position Pacific Coast Cannery for its biggest contract yet. During World War I, President Woodrow Wilson put a businessman named Herbert Hoover in charge of relief efforts to supply humanitarian aid to European allies. Herbert Hoover had connections with Lou Hing's longtime associate, Sonny Jim Rolfe, who, by the way, was mayor of San Francisco by now. And that, my friends, is how deals get done. There was a gentleman named Herbert Hoover. He organized the Belgium relief effort to provide food for the uh, people in Belgium after the invasion by uh, Germany. So the cannery provided the goods to Herbert Hoover. And this is the buckskin brand, was sent over to Europe. And that's where everybody started to make money. Yeah, that must have been a huge contract. It's a huge contract. But even an even greater contract was uh, at the end of World War I, the contract to supply all of Europe, the reconstruction of Europe, that was headed by Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover would, of course, go on to become the president of the United States. And that didn't work out very well for the country or the cannery. Spoiler alert, the Great Depression. But before we move on to the assassination plot and the downfall of the East Bay's canning industry, there's just one thing from this whole relief effort that I can't stop thinking about. At the dawn of World War I, most people outside of the U.S. had never heard of Oakland. We'd only been a city for about 60 years. Meanwhile, in Europe, there were battles where tens of thousands of people were dying in a single day, and the farms were just littered with bodies and carved up by trenches and barbed wire, and it was like the apocalypse. I imagine these poor, starving people, desperate to survive. Then, all of a sudden, they get these cans filled with delicious peaches or strawberries. Maybe it's the best thing they've tasted in months or ever. They look at the label and it says Oakland, California. And that's the first time they ever heard of this place. Noted Chinese romantic life comes to end. That's the headline of Liu Hing's obituary in the Oakland Tribune from March 1934. The article says, immigrant boy who rose to high position in industry dies peacefully at home. Liu Hing, 3750 Lakeshore Ave, age 77, he died peacefully, surrounded by his wife and three sons, instead of violently, at the hands of a compatriot gunman, as he had one time feared. Obviously, this whole murder conspiracy happened a long time ago, but here's the short version of what local historian Robert Bardi put together. Liu Hing was part of a group of businessmen who started a shipping line that went between the Bay Area and China. They bought a ship that had been damaged by fire, but it ended up costing way more than they thought to repair. Some of the same people who ran the shipping company, including Liu Hing, 
also ran a bank. And proposals to basically move money from the bank to the shipping company and possibly bring in some more white investors triggered a power struggle. Here's how the Oakland Tribune obituary explains the fallout. Quote, Secret meetings were held in Chinatown alleyways, and a hate list was prepared with Lou's name at the top. The list fell into the hands of police, and they immediately placed guards over all those named on it. For months, wherever Lou walked, armed men watched for any attempt to attack him. The need for their care was shown when Fong Wing, a director of the company, and the one whose name followed Lou's on the hate list, grew careless and stepped outside without waiting for his escort. A bullet fired from ambush killed him as soon as he set foot in the street. Finally, the feeling died down, and Lou walked again in safety. So he survived, but the years following this drama, the 1920s, was not a good time for Lou Hang. There's a story that the government went after my great-grandfather and shut down all 17 of his businesses, or made it difficult for him to operate his businesses. The federal government or the, the federal city? government? Okay, gotcha. Uh, went after him because he was just too high profile. This was an era of prohibition, and government was cracking down on all kinds of illegal operations. Because Chinese workers were shut out from so much of the regular economy due to discrimination, Chinatowns were known as centers of vice, gambling, opium, prostitution. So it's not surprising that law enforcement would try to make an example of this already marginalized community. But it wasn't the feds who took down the cannery. It was the Great Depression. Not even Liu Hing was powerful enough to withstand that. By the time Bruce's dad was ready to join the workforce, the family's empire had crumbled. My father, he had gone to Berkeley. Uh, you talk about the lack of opportunities. He came back uh, after World War II, and I, I was able to pull this out of him because for 10 years he and I went to the same restaurant at the same time, the same day, and had the same bowl of noodles. And after several years, I was able to pull out from him the discrimination that he faced because my grandfather did not want him involved in the business that my grandfather was and grandmother were involved in. Meaning, of course, the underground economy. They wanted something better for their son. But even though Bruce's dad's California roots went all the way back to the gold rush, a lot of potential employers didn't see him as a real American. He was sent to Berkeley mm -hmm. and took electrical engineering when he came out of the war, he went looking for a job, and no one would hire him. Bruce's dad thought that maybe displaying his patriotism might help. He then wore his uniform with his new lieutenant bars, and he recounted a story where one employer said, uh, I don't hire Japs, why would I hire chinks? Eventually, he got an electrical engineering job but not at the level he deserved. He was the first non-white person in IBEW 595. The bad news is that he was kept as an apprentice for most of the time until 1965 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. The Civil Rights Act wasn't perfect, but it went a long way towards outlawing racial discrimination in this country. Bruce Kwan has spent much of his life trying to uphold the spirit of that act and pushing it forward. Part of my, my work has been as a, in civil rights for 
the past 50 years since I started at Berkeley in 1964. I was involved in the free speech movement and the, and the uh, Vietnam Day Committee. Right, and that was just before the, uh, the Third World Solidarity Movement started with the demand for ethnic studies and things like that? I was, one of, the, I was one of the leaders of the Third World Strike. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, one of the four chief negotiators with the university for the establishment of the Ethnic Studies Department, along mm -hmm. with Carl Mack, Lee Brightman, and Richard Rodriguez. Okay, here are the reasons the academy's closed. This is uh, according to Jim Layton. Jim Layton was a manager at the Del Monte Cannery. Don is reading from his interview notes here. Canned food is considered old-fashioned. Introduction of microwave oven and frozen foods. Health-conscious consumers move toward fresh fruits and vegetables. It wasn't just changing tastes that killed the East Bay's canning industry. Globalization made it cheaper to use overseas labor. Either way, Pacific Coast Cannery closed about half a century before the rest of the East Bay's big operations. For a long time, it was a warehouse for storing booze and cigarettes that were confiscated at the port because people tried to smuggle them in without paying tariffs. Then, the cannery was more or less abandoned for about three decades until a developer named Rick Holiday took a wrong turn coming home from work one day. He came across the building by accident. It had uh, 18 inches of water, with styrofoam pellets floating on it. There was a methamphetamine clinic on the site. He means a meth lab, not clinic. A car chase smashed into the uh, methamphetamine kind of blew it up. It was on the, the news. It, it's pretty notorious. The site was full of puddles and so it was like mosquitoes. It was 25 tons of trash. Rick had been converting old industrial buildings into residential properties since 1988. He started in San Francisco's Soma District. The same thing that attracted Lou Hing to the West Oakland property also caught Rick's attention. Proximity to a railroad. Only this time it was being close to BART, not freight lines that mattered. In 2000, Rick spent $15 million to buy the property with plans to build about 150 units of housing on the skeleton of the old cannery. The building, if you see the pictures, it was horrible. It had been stuccoed over. There were no windows in it. And so we didn't have a lot to work with. You know, the, the columns are original, the concrete's original, and the windows are back in, right? Kind of where they were. So the basic bones of the building are essentially what it was when it was a cannery. But there is, and there's some, some equipment that's in the different courtyards. I don't know if, if you've gotten a chance to walk through the building and walk through the courtyards. I hadn't, but Rick put me in touch with his wife and partner, Nancy, and she took me on a tour of the Pacific Cannery Lofts, which opened in 2008. This is the Lu Hing Garden. We dedicated this courtyard to the Lu Hing family in honor of um, the family and the history here. Um, everybody knows this as the Lu Hing Garden. We've had the family here. Amidst the giant halls lined with equipment that was salvaged from the cannery, there's this gorgeous garden growing under the courtyard skylights. There are palm trees and succulents. Lu Hing's granddaughter, Jean Lu, got to see this transformation before she passed away. She went through the building when it was 
just getting demolished, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just doing the demo and cleaning up and stuff. And she would point to places and said, you know, I haven't been here since I was seven years old. And I remember all the ladies sitting over there with band-aids on their fingers. Um, not that they were hurt, she said, but that they were protecting their fingers so they wouldn't blister because they were cutting with a knife all day. Mm-hmm. She remem- I remember all the fruit going over to the ice house and being cooled. And she goes, and I remember the, the bosses in those rooms up there, you know, looking down over the floor and watching people work. And speaking of that cooling room, let's take a look. So we're walking through this building that used to be where they store the fruit, and now it's full of, uh, what would you say, construction equipment, um, pipes. Oh, this is massive. I can't believe how big this is. All right, making our way through the clutter. So yeah, I can definitely picture hundreds of thousands of pounds of fruit being stored here. There's certainly enough room for... I don't even know what's down there. During the uh, harvest season, I know that you need to have uh, plenty of room. Coming back into the sunlight after emerging from that basement storage unit, It felt like stepping out of a giant tomb. There was a lot of history buried down there. And a few miles away at Mountain View Cemetery, there's a lot of history buried there too. That's where Liu Hang was laid to rest. But his legacy, told and untold, lives on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. I'll be posting some really cool before and after photos of the cannery on social media, so don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday. You can find all the links at eastbayyesterday.com. Thank you to everybody who supported the Kickstarter campaign and bought a long-lost Oakland map. They'll be going to the printer and then shipping soon. For this episode, I want to give a special shout-out to Don Hausler, who let me borrow a big stack of his files all about the East Bay's canning industry. Don is the founder of the Emeryville Historical Society, which is starting to have meetings again after a little hiatus. If you're interested in joining, drop me a line and I'll put you in touch. Also, massive shout outs to Bruce Kwan and Rick and Nancy Holiday, who were so generous to share their time and knowledge with me. Also, Bob Barty, Roland Lee of the San Francisco Business Times, my sister, Bonnie O'Donoghue, and of course, everybody at the Oakland Library's History Room and everybody who contributes to the Oakland Wiki. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from Loka Ping, Deeb, Tavin Anatech, Gary Lucas, and Lee Rosevere. The theme song music came from Anatech. Okay, I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.